Good evening. Welcome to Voice in the Wilderness. I'm Don Noble of Pure Heart Ministries, and I welcome you today with exceedingly great joy. Tonight, we're going to continue Keeping Steadfast, Part 2. We are in the book of 2 Thessalonians, Chapter 2. Last week, we came to a close talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit being the restrainer. <clears throat> and so I want to clear, take a minute to clarify that again because, you know, the question is, what has hindered the full display of the lawlessness one, that spirit of lawlessness? And it is the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling the church and indwelling every believer. We are the restraining power. Now, when we are taken out of the way at the rapture, when Jesus comes to get us, when we are removed and taken out of the way, <clears throat> then the lawless one can come. And so I closed last week's program just explaining how important that is and that the Holy Spirit will still even though we have been removed and we have, the restraint has been removed, that doesn't mean that people won't still be saved during the tribulation. Absolutely, the Holy Spirit will still be working and he will still be uh, leading people to saving faith in Christ. So we don't want to think that all of a sudden since we're gone, there won't the Holy Spirit won't still be at work. Yes, he will still be at work, of course. Now, <clears throat> after the church has been raptured to heaven, the lawless one will be revealed to the world. And the apostle kind of skips over the career of the Antichrist and describes his ultimate doom. It's almost as if he's destroyed as soon as he's revealed, but that, of course, is not so. <clears throat> he will be allowed to conduct his reign of terror, described in verses 9 through 12, before he is brought down at Christ's coming to reign. Let me just read those few scriptures again to you. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved." And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, if we are right in believing that the man of sin is revealed after the rapture and that he continues until Christ's revelation, then his so-called career will last approximately seven years, the length of the tribulation period. And then, of course, we just read that the Lord will consume him 
with the breath of his mouth, I love it, and will bring him to nothing by the manifestation of his coming. So that's the good news. And of course, that will bring an end to that regime of this raging imposter. <clears throat> and of course, the manifestation of Christ's coming um, when he returns to the earth to take the throne and the reign for 1,000 years is what we have to look forward to. Now, the coming of this lawless one is in accordance with the working of Satan. That's what the scripture says. And his career resembles that of Satan because he's energized by Satan. He will, this Antichrist, will display all kinds of miracles and signs and lying wonders. And of course, will be with Jesus. The rest of the people will be left here and it'll be up to them to figure out if this is for real, is this guy a joke? Is he a liar? Um, I, I can't imagine what that whole scenario is going to look like. But these miracles will not be miracles of God, obviously. The devil and his agents, they can perform miracles. And the man of lawlessness will perform them. A miracle indicates supernatural power but not necessarily divine power. The miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ proved him to be the promised Messiah, not simply because they were supernatural, but because they fulfilled prophecy and were of a, such of a moral nature that Satan could not have done them without harming his own cause. The Antichrist will unscrupulously use every form of wickedness to deceive the perishing people, those who heard the gospel during the Age of Grace, which is what we're living in, but who had no love for the truth. If they had believed, they would have been saved. But now they are deceived by the miracles of the Antichrist. You know, this these several scriptures here bother me. Um, verse 10, 11, and 12. Uh, all the people that are going to be deceived because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. See, that's where we are. That's where we are. There are people who are not receiving the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. That is already being sent. There is strong delusion. There is strong deception. Same word, delusion, deception. That they should believe the lie. We have a, an entire practically an entire government. We've got an FBI, a CIA, the Department of Justice. These people do nothing but lie. They are under a strong delusion. And if they do not turn to the truth and the love of the truth and Christ, they will all be condemned. 
And it says those who continue to believe the lies, they will all be condemned because they didn't believe the truth, but had pleasure, had pleasure in unrighteousness. I mean to tell you, when you watch that group of folks up there at the Capitol, at the White House, they seem to have pleasure in unrighteous. It seemed to have pleasure in uh, advancing abortion. It seemed to have pleasure in seeing clinics that help women, pregnancy centers. They seem to have pleasure in seeing them destroyed. Anything that's good, they seem to have pleasure in, in uh, seeing anything that's good destroyed. It's, it's, it's a bizarre thing. It's satanic. It's satanic. I'm telling you. It's like we are living these scriptures. Now, God will, he actually will send them a working of error that they should believe the lie. And that is during the tribulation. I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about that we see large groups of people believing these lies and refusing to believe the truth, and they have pleasure in unrighteousness. But during the tribulation, when this Antichrist is seated in the temple of God, these people are going to believe the lie. And the lie, of course, is the Antichrist's claim to be God. And the people that refused to receive Lord Jesus Christ manifest in the flesh, well, when he was on earth, he warned men. He said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. That's John 5, 43. So now they receive the man of sin who comes in his own name and demands worship as God. It's, uh, it's just, it's almost unbelievable. If a person sets up an idol in his heart, God will answer him according to his idol. That's Ezekiel 14.4. The Antichrist will probably be Jewish. Jews, and the reason, and that's why I kind of went with the idea that the Antichrist will be Jewish, because the Jews would not be deceived by one posing as the Messiah, unless he claimed to be descended from the tribe of Judah and the family of David, right? Because we know the scriptures tell us that. Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. He sits on David's throne. Now, um, from, uh, from the passage, uh, verse 12 from this passage, it seems that those who hear the gospel in this age of grace, now, this is the age of grace, but who do not trust Christ will not have another opportunity to be saved after the rapture. Ooh, well, we don't know. But if men do not believe the Lord Jesus now, they will believe the Antichrist then. It says here that they all will be judged because of their unbelief and their love of evil. This is reminiscent of Luke 14, 24, that says, For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my supper. 
We know that many people will be saved during the tribulation. Hallelujah. That's good news. 144,000 Jews will be saved, and they will be God's messengers. They will be evangelists. They will be evangelizing in preaching the gospel of the kingdom throughout the world, not just not just to Israel, throughout the world. Through their ministry, many others will be saved. But it seems that those who will be saved are those who never heard the gospel clearly presented during this present age and who never deliberately refused the Savior. So there are folks, you know, when, when we are raptured and they're left here, um, they'll have an opportunity to receive the Savior. And it wasn't that they deliberately refused the Savior. Maybe they were just, I don't know, you know, unchurched people that just never, you know, they're good moral people, but they just were never churched. So, um, but the people who are really opposed to God right now, they are having great pleasure in unrighteousness and evil deeds. This is what the scripture is saying. If they don't turn now before the rapture, they probably will not turn to the Lord after the rapture. They will believe the lie because they're already believing the lie now, and they'll believe the lie after we're gone. And the man of perdition, the Antichrist, they'll believe. Now, Verses 13 through 17 is kind of the happy part of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Um, In these first 12 verses, Paul describes the doom of the Antichrist and his followers, and then he turns to these Thessalonian Christians, and he thinks of their calling and their destiny by way of contrast, and he He does this by expressing thanks to God for these precious brethren. He calls them beloved by the Lord. And he proceeds to give a summary of their salvation, past, present, and future. He says, starts out by saying, God chose you. And the Bible clearly teaches that God chooses men to salvation, men and women. But it never teaches that he chooses some to be damned. Men are lost, men and women are lost through their own deliberate choice. We have a will. Apart from God's intervention, all all of us would be lost. Does God have the right to choose some to be saved? Look, basically the scriptures tell us his desire is for all to be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4. However, you need to know this. The Bible does not, I'm going to emphasize, does not teach universalism. And that is the theory that all will eventually be saved. No, that's not correct. No. Now, there are churches here in America that teach that. They teach that there is no hell. There is no real hell. Everybody will end up being saved. And hell is just living here on earth. You know, like 
our existence here can get difficult, and so that's hell. Now, Jesus was clear. He said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. It is a place of torment. So there is a literal hell, and there is a literal heaven. And so we have a free will to choose. Do we want to spend eternal life with Jesus Christ or eternal damnation with Satan and all of his minions? So the Bible does not teach this theory of universalism that everybody's going to eventually be saved. That is not the truth. Okay. Now, there are two possible readings. Two possible readings. The first is that it, it may mean that God's choice was made before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, in terms of God choosing us, choosing us to salvation. Second, the expression may also be read as first fruits, indicating that the Thessalonians saved so early in the Christian Christian dispensation were chosen by God to be among the first of a great harvest of redeemed souls. Um, so this should be contrasted with the preceding verses. Unbelievers are doomed by their unbelief to eternal destruction, whereas believers are chosen for salvation. And of course, um, through the sanctification by the Spirit, we've got the Holy Spirit's pre-conversion work. He's, he's setting individuals apart to God from the world. He's convicting them of sin, and he points them to Christ. Someone has well said this, if it had not been for Christ, there would have been no feast. For if it had not been for the Holy Spirit, there would have been no guests. <laughs> So first you have God's part in salvation. Now you have man's. Both are necessary. Some people can see only God's election. And they imply that man, man has nothing to do with it. Others overemphasize man's part and neglect God's sovereign choice. And I agree with this commentator. The truth lies between both extremes. Election and human responsibility are both biblical doctrines, and it's best to believe and teach both. Even it, and here's the, here's the key. Even if we can't understand how both can be true, how can both be true? Is it truly that we are handpicked by God to be saved and others handpicked by God to be damned? No, but some ha are handpicked by God to be saved. But then we have a free will, right? We can choose to not be saved. So it's, it's both. It's both and. And we, they're both doctrines of the Bible. And so we don't understand in our finite mind how they can both be true. We just know that God has chose us to salvation in eternity. He's called us to it in time. 
and the call refers to the moment when a person believes the truth. Our gospel does not mean that there are other genuine gospels. There's only one gospel, one. But there are many different preachers of the gospel and many, many different audiences. Paul is referring to the gospel of God, which was preached by him. For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, here the apostle peers into the future and he sees the ultimate outcome of salvation, to be with Christ and be with him forever. Now, J.N. Darby captures the thought in his beautiful hymn, and this is what he writes. He says, and it is so, I shall be like thy son. Is this the grace which he has for me, has won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thought, in glory to his own blessed likeness brought. So, in verses 13 and 14, we have a system of theology in miniature. It's a marvelous summary of the scope of God's purposes with his believing people. He has shown us that salvation originates in a divine choice, is wrought out by divine power, and is made effective through a divine message and will be perfected in divine glory. And... What else can we say about that? But saints are exhorted to stand fast and hold the traditions which they were taught, whether they were taught either by the apostles or by their letters. The important thing to notice is that the only traditions, now this is key, the only traditions which are reliable and authoritative are the inspired utterances of the apostles as written in the scripture. Jesus condemned the scribes and he condemned the Pharisees for nullifying the commandments of God by their traditions. See, to them, tradition was much more important than the actual word of God or the words of Jesus. And he was in their midst. Paul warned the Colossians against the traditions of men. The traditions we should hold are the great truths which have been handed over to us in the sacred scriptures. And so this verse is sometimes used to justify the traditions of churches or of religious leaders. But any traditions, any traditions which are contrary to the word of God, well, they're worthless and they're dangerous. So we don't want man's so-called traditions because mere human traditions are um, contrary to the word that are that are contrary to the word of God are worthless and very dangerous now if human traditions are accepted as equal with the Bible who is this who is to decide which traditions are right and which are wrong Having told out his message to the saints, Paul now prays it in. He commonly follows his teaching with prayer. And the prayer is addressed to our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father. And we are accustomed to Paul's mentioning both divine persons in the same breath, but it's unusual for him to mention the Son first. He is, of course, emphasizing their essential unity and complete equality. That is, that is very important. God's past, 
provision is introduced as an encouragement to trust him for future courage and strength. He loved us and gave us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Doubtless, this looks back to the greatest exhibition of God's love, the gift of his son Jesus Christ for us, because we know that he settled the sin question at Calvary. Amen. We have eternal comfort now and the hope of a glorious future, and it is all through his marvelous grace. Verse 17 is that God will comfort their hearts and establish them in every good word and work, not just encouragement in the midst of distress, but strength to move forward in the battle. The word retreat wasn't even in the apostles' vocabulary. And I mentioned this uh, a couple weeks ago, and it shouldn't be in ours either. The expression, every good word and work. Think about this. Truth on our lips is not enough. It must be worked out in our life. Can you say amen with me? So in our lives, there should be the order of teaching and doing, doctrine and duty, preaching and practice. And that concludes 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have our glorious Lord who is our comfort, and he has loved us with everlasting, isn't that beautiful, everlasting consolation, everlasting comfort, and good hope by grace. We have a good Father. We have a great Savior, and we have that sweet Holy Spirit that lives within us. We are grateful for the wonderful miracle of having this Jesus live inside our heart. So we must stay steadfast. We keep steadfast. We know what's coming down the ro- coming down the road. We know what's ahead. We know it's ugly, but we know there's something greater than that, and that is our uh, being raptured with the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, you can go to www.pureheart.today and listen to this podcast again, or you can download the iHeartRadio app, go to podcasts, type in Pure Heart Ministries, and listen to the app 24-7 any day of the week. And I would love, of course, I beg you to send me an email, write to me, let me know what you think of this program. And you can email me at dawn at pureheart.today. And those are all lowercase letters, all one word, no spaces, dawn at d-a-w-n at pureheart.today. Of course, I covet your prayers and I'd love for you to consider helping to support this ministry. You can send a check to Pure Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 85, Valley Grove, West Virginia. That's P.O. Box 85, Valley Grove, West Virginia, zip code 26060. I look forward to being with you again. We're going to move on to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 next week. 
So please tune in. This is Don Noble saying, Shalom, Shalom. Peace be unto you.